Welcome to Absolute Destiny, a podcast. I'm Autumn. And I'm Chesney. And we are kicking off the third arc of the show. This is the Akio Atori arc. We are on episode 25, Our Eternal Apocalypse. For those who have not caught on to the shtick by now, um, I am a decades-long fan. Chesney is seeing this show for the very first time, so we are dragging her through this kicking and screaming. Um, more excited <laughs> screaming than kicking, I would say. Right. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. But this is her first time finding out just how much of a piece of shit Akio Otori is. So <laughs> without further ado, we are uh, getting into this plot arc, which sees some major changes for the show. Uh, we have some new living arrangements for Utena and Anthe. We are back to seeing Toga. Uh, mm-hmm. As a part of the show, he is back on the show. His voice actor is back. Um, and we have a new ending song, uh, Virtual Star Embryology, which gives rise to the phrase empty movement, which is also one of the largest fan communities for Utana. Um, This is where the name comes from. So just wanted to give a shout out to everyone from... Uh, the Empty Movement Discord, and and the forum, and the, the site Otori New. The folks there have done so much to keep this community alive uh, for all these years. And as we are recording this, we have just passed the 25th anniversary of Revolutionary Gula Utena. And of course, like, Vana and Yasha put on a huge thing over the weekend for... Uh, everyone to, to join in on the stream and on Discord. Uh, it was also when Reddit was doing the Our Place thing again, and everyone was trying to keep a little choo-choo riding on a rainbow coming from Nyankat. Um, <laughs> it, it has been a massive week for Revolutionary Galutina stuff, and I feel like it's very appropriate that we are coming up on the episode where the ending theme references empty movement and gives us a chance to talk about how amazing everyone there has been um hey also 25 years and episode 25 i mean that's (laughs) also a weird coincidence (laughs) i wish we could say we planned it but we didn't (laughs) we definitely planned it don't let her lie to you like that (laughs) so we open with the first time that we're going to be seeing one of the new recycled shots (laughs) (laughs) Um, We know that they like to recycle animation for this show. And every time it appears, it becomes like a ritual. So that way they can play with it visually and change it up and make the differences count. Uh, We're also going to get a new Zetai Unmei Mokushiroku and uh, a new elevator sequence going up to the dueling arena. Yeah, this plot arc kicks off a whole lot of change. So there's a lot to talk about in this episode, and some of it I think we're going to kick to subsequent episodes where it's a bit more prominent. Because like, if we just spend this entire episode talking about just the new things, we will never get to the actual plot of this episode. <laughs> no, it'll be three hours long and Autumn will kill me. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I said, we start with one of the new uh, shots that's going to be one of the recycled shots, and that is uh, driving down the road at night. 
And this is almost like an implication of driving down the road at night, because what we're seeing is just a constant stream of uh, streetlights going by as if you are driving at high speed. And we see Akio's, um, I want to say it's a Chevy Roadster, if I remember correctly. Oh, shit. Which is it? Is it? Or is it a Porsche Roadster? You would know this better than me. Yeah, I know exactly where to look this up. And so I am just going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Okay, yes. (laughs) I was right. It is a Chevy Roadster. Oh, okay. (laughs) So yeah, we see Akio's car for the first time. And it is Akio and Toga riding in the car today. Uh, That's a theme that we're just going to have to get used to. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, because he's a smarmy piece of shit, Akio opens this conversation talking about the throb of the engine. Which Ugh, disgusting. Ugh, I hate how I'm he... gonna, I mean, I'll say this. If you're driving a Corvette, yes, that is what you're going to want to be talking about. But I don't want those words to ever fall out of Akio's mouth again. And they're gonna. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly where I'm coming from. I'm like, anybody else, like anybody that's not um, a sexual predator, <laughs> it's fine for them to say that. But I hate that coming out of his mouth. That said, like, I don't know many people who have owned a car that nice and not also been kind of a piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like most people talk about the purr of the engine. I have not heard a single person describe it as a throb, which I think just speaks (laughs) to like, (laughs) I think that just speaks to like, Akio as a person in general and him not being able to get over his own masculinity, but whatever. Speaking of not being able to get over his own masculinity, he offers Toga the chance to drive, which it's sex. It's a the car is a metaphor for sex. That's not even that's like a trivial observation at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, like if you have ever watched this show before, this is like the lowest of low-hanging fruit as far as the metaphors that appear on this show. Um, and so we have we have Akio basically throwing it at Toga and Toga, for his part, saying, I'm not old enough. I'd rather not. He will not always be refusing Akio's advances. So fair warning to the listener for that. Um, I was surprised, though. I was really surprised that he turned him down. Before we move on from the car, I will say, I have to mention, we are just back with a new arc, and Akio already utters the sentence, my Otori Academy, and his license plate on his car says Otori. So this man, I mean, he really and truly thinks he runs the ship. In his mind, it's his. The whole school. (laughs) Yeah, because like, Otori Academy passes like patrilineally, and... He is engaged to the daughter of the chairman. So now it's going to pass to him in like the most feudal patriarchal way possible. Um, It's his now because he's the one who's going to be marrying into the Atori family. Just wild that like you even go and put it on your license plate. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. And yeah. So when Toga refuses... Akio says that he values the independence of the students at the school. 
which is like the boldest lie of all of them so far. This guy has been doing everything he can to manipulate people. Right. He values no one's independence except his own. Yeah. Fuck off, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some more stuff that I want to say about Akio, but we'll save it until the observatory. So from there, they race off into the night. And the next scene that we get is Wakaba coming to visit Utena and Anthe in their new digs. Which, uh, as we talked about at the end of last episode, is they're living with Akio now. And when Akio answers the door to greet Wakaba, he's got his arm up on the door, uh, the door frame, in just the like most sleazy bachelor kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> the hey, <laughs> like this is how pornos start. Like this is. I'm so glad you said that because I was thinking <laughs> the exact same thing, and I feel like. That cannot possibly be an accident, right? Um, not necessarily because, like, Ikuhara was inspired by porn, but that <laughs> Ikuhara and porn were both inspired by, like, 60s and 70s cinema. And that yeah. was, like, a shorthand for a cool character, a, a masculine sexual character, was that pose. And they both pull from that visual language. And so I... I I say this knowing full well that like we're getting into the arc where several of the folks on the show who do the animation or at least one I know for certain um, really starts to lean into the sexuality of the show in a kind of uncomfortable way. Like the art is drawn at its most careful and loving way in the most disturbing of the scenes where the context does not at all support the attention to detail that's being put into the artwork. Yeah. I mean, case in point, uh, I have part of um, my taking notes for this episode was I paused to take a minute to do a fun little screen cap, which I will be posting on my Twitter later uh, because (laughs) it shows... (laughs) It shows that the attention to detail that Autumn's talking about here is given to other things and not necessarily like the usual background detailing and shots. But uh, it might be my new Twitter picture. (laughs) (laughs) So when Wakaba arrives, Anthea is cleaning and Choo Choo is being Choo Choo um, and getting in the way as... Anthea is trying to vacuum. Mm-hmm. I do already have, and I'll keep this one short, but I do already have a little bit of a tinfoil hat conspiracy this early into the episode. <laughs> hit, hit me with it. Um, so we've talked many a time on this podcast about how Choo Choo is representative of Anthea's subconscious. Or how she's really feeling. Uh, my tinfoil hat with this is anytime anybody else is around, she has to suck up her real self, put on the mask, and yet somehow 
her real self ends up breaking out anyway because Choo Choo gets sucked up in the vacuum and ends up breaking out of the vacuum in a later shot and is covered in dust and stuff from the vacuum. And in this same scene, we get Anthe being kind of performative, but then letting her guard down and laughing at something that Utena and Wakaba do later in the scene. And for me, this just kind of triggered why she has Choo Choo and why she does this period. Because when Akio sees her laughing at something or someone else. Oh, yeah, the laugh. We're going to get to that laugh. Yeah. His face is god awful. So you kind of get a glimpse as to why she has this mask that we've seen so far in the show. And then yeah, that's to dissociate. Yes, that's my tinfoil hat moment already. Yeah. Um, Anthe's need to dissociate to survive Akio is on full display in this episode. So Wakaba shows up and claims that she's here to help. And her idea of helping is gawking at Akio. And of course, like at this point, Utena and Wakaba have no reason to suspect Akio is anything other than, you know, a handsome, charismatic older man. Right. And granted, he's like 10 years older than these two at this point. Because being charitable, he's like 24, 25. Yeah. Um, I don't know, like, if I can't remember if the wiki gives like an actual age, but he's in that range. Um, and so. Utena thinks that Wakaba's talking about the nice room that they've been given, and she immediately corrects Utena and says, no, I've got my eyes on the chairman, and she's jealous of them living under the same roof, and this is where Utena corrects her and says, nope, sorry, he's engaged. And Wakaba goes like into a full despair spiral about how all the good men are taken, It's like, (laughs) honey, this is not a good man who's been taken. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You have dodged a bullet by not catching this one. (laughs) She also um, starts what may just be like an overarching theme in the whole arc, but at least is persistent in this episode. Um, But she makes a comment about him having an angelic smile. Um, And that theme of like, angels uh persist throughout this episode right because we're going to come back to that both in akio's conversation with utana and a few scenes and it's also brought up again in the dueling song with sionji later mm-hmm. um but the group of them sit down to tea and anthe thanks wakaba for her help and wakaba and utana start ribbing each other and this sets Anthe laughing in like a really sincere and genuine way. It's one of the few times in the series we see this where Anthe is just having a moment of unguarded joy that doesn't seem to be the like wry mischievous smile of someone who has just given uh, someone who has just given Nanami her comeuppance. This is just her enjoying a moment with her friends and we can see her being with friends as opposed to being the rose bride 
while Utena is with her friend. Right. This is the moment you were talking about where Akio glares at her. Yeah. And it's it's disturbing <laughs> to see that kind of like cold anger look on someone's face. Um, especially his that we haven't really seen a true emotion from him either, I don't think, up to this point. It's just been smarmy smiles and whatever bullshit that he likes to put out there. But this is real. <laughs> this yeah, is this is the first real. taste of narcissistic rage from him. Yes. Um, and also, dude, if you didn't want Anthe to s- do this, why did you have Utena move in here at all? You didn't have to do that. Oh, that's, I think, why he is so enraged by this moment. He brought them here to have more control. And the very first thing that happens is he is confronted with him losing control over Anthe. I see. But I'm like, you could have separated them and had even more? I guess maybe he was, I mean, who knows? I don't know what he's thinking at this point in the arc. But I think maybe he wanted to bring Utena in to control her too. And it's backfiring (laughs) already because of the influence those two have on each other. Possibly. I definitely know the answer to this one. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much more I want to say in response to that. But that actually is getting into proper spoiler territory. And so I just have to let you sit and speculate for the moment. (laughs) Whenever, like, whenever we have the final episode discussion there's going to be final episode discussion and then there's probably going to be an episode on its own that's just chesney and autumn talk about all the shit from the show (laughs) oh yeah i kind of baked that into the plan from the start aside from like the six hour three-part final episode (laughs) that is obviously going to be happening um (laughs) probably it's going to be like Chesney's going to burn through the entire series in a weekend and then immediately need to talk about it. And then we'll just record that as a a follow-up episode. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, we have that horrible, cold anger. And then it immediately flashes from that to um, the quickest student council transition I have ever seen in my life. Uh, That was its own form of violence. Uh, in my opinion. <laughs> but um, yeah, the elevator gate like throws itself. Uh, I can't remember now if it's open or shut, but we come up on the student council and Sionji is actually present in front of the student council, which we haven't seen in the last arc. He returned to the school, but this is his first time talking to the student council that we've seen and apparently at all. Because they're like, where have you been this whole time? Um, And he doesn't answer that. But he's like, I'm done being a duelist. I can't trust what's written in the letters. Basically, I don't want anybody to control me anymore. Yeah. Notably, Toga is still absent from the student council meetings and Nanami is still chairing them. Yep. Which good for her. (laughs) (laughs) You keep that student council president seat. So Jury says that Sionji's learned from being fooled from a phony letter before, which took me back because it's been so long. 
<laughs> yeah. But I forgot that had even happened. I guess the question there is, was it a phony letter at all? Because we know that everything that has happened so far has been the machinations of this end of the world character. Mm-hmm. And so like Sionji breaks the rules of the dueling game, kidnaps Anthe and takes her to the uh, takes her to the dueling arena and gets kicked out. But the result of that was still Utena pushing forward to ultimate victory in that arc. Yeah, so my money's on it really wasn't phony at all. One thing that I want to bring up is like, it's really noteworthy here. The visual metaphor that's at play with this student council meeting is a game of baseball. Yes. So when Sionji starts speaking, he's already got one strike on the board. And then when he's talking about not being able to trust the letters and being done with dueling, he racks up two more strikes and the first out. The second out happens, it's a a pop fly that gets caught when Mickey says, actually, I've verified the truth of the letter. There is an elevator gondola inside the pillar around which the stairs up to the dueling arena spiral. And then the third out comes when Sionji again refuses the dueling game and says, I never signed up to be the end of the world's lackey. And so we have these like, almost biblical three denials of the uh, of the dueling game. Yeah. And each one of them corresponds to an out where you could almost get the sense that like the baseball game in the background is telling Sionji how wrong he is. Yeah. Because Sionji once again is like committing to not dueling anymore. And of course, like he's the duelist this episode. We're going to see him duel again. Something brings them back. <laughs> but that biblical piece of the denials, put a pin in that. That's going to come back toward the end of the series. This is not the first time that we are seeing that biblical trope play out. Yeah, I feel like all of a sudden we took a a, a hard left into um, biblical like parallels <laughs> <laughs> and allegories and things. Uh, which is fine. It's just funny. <laughs> I mean, maybe they've been happening this whole time and I just missed it because I'm so far removed from going to church. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, something interesting is that, yeah, when the game, the baseball game is called uh, and they said like game set is when Sionji says he's out. He's done. And as he's walking away, both the jury and Mickey are like, who is this end of the world anyway? So they're finally starting to question that for themselves instead of just right. blindly following the orders. Yeah, because like the entire student council just spent an entire plot arc getting screwed over by an absent end of the world who is helping this mysterious Black Rose council or Black Rose society and not them. And now suddenly they're getting letters again. Yeah. It's like, oh, now all of a sudden you want to come back to me? Screw you. Who are you? <laughs> right. Because like the last thing that any of them experienced was being taken advantage of by people that they care about. Yeah. And very specifically being targeted 
as the end of the world is silent. So like on some level, if he was sincere about it, <laughs> there's almost like a level of maturity at play here with Sionji giving up on the dueling game. Yeah. I but wish he had. <laughs> yeah. But we've seen this before with, with Jury throwing the locket away. It never lasts. And that's how they keep ending up trapped. Yeah. They, they come to this point of, that's it. I've had enough. And then the first time their ex texts them, they wake up in bed next to them again. Like, that is the problem they all have, is they cannot stick to their, their commitment to ending their relationships that are tying them to this dueling game. Which is just so sad. I mean, they're all kids. So, like, of course, they're still learning, like, their life lessons, right? Like, the, the big, hard lessons of that kind of stuff. And, I mean, admittedly, even some adults still go through that to this day. It's not just a kid issue. But, like, it still just brings me back to the fact that they are still kids. And that this end of the world very much is taking advantage of them. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. And speaking of that, the, <laughs> the next scene is Utena and Akio alone in the observatory. Is it a planetarium? Is it a planetarium? Okay. Um, yeah, because he has a planetarium projector that projects the sky as opposed to a giant telescope that lets them look at it. Got it. So, yeah, they're alone in the planetarium and he, um, like, they're talking about pointing out a star and he's like, oh, it's that one. And like, does the whole put the arm around and point out which one it is? Ugh. But. <laughs> yep. A lot of ick moments, but, you know, that's just part of the arc at this point. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because he is showing her Venus and then talks about the morning star, which. Autumn, this is a sidebar here. Correct me if I'm wrong. Those are two separate things, are they not? Venus is the planet no. and the morning star is the morning star. No, no, no. Um, before the planets were identified as the planets, um, Venus was known as the morning star. I for see. For okay. exactly the reason that Akio was talking about. Okay. That's what had me a little confused. Okay. So, yeah. He's talking about Venus as the morning star and Utena says something like, Oh, that's a romantic name for it. Isn't it talking about like the actual name of the morning star. And he says, Oh yeah. Well, another name for it is um, Lucifer. And my name is actually derived from the morning star Akio. Uh, and then he talks about the star who was once an angel yet chose to be the king of hell, which I did admittedly just say that it's been a while since my Bible study days. However, <laughs> <laughs> however, I did study it for a while. Um, admittedly, it was the um, Protestant version of the Bible. There's very many different versions. Um, and more specifically, mostly the NIV. But anyway, um, the versions that I read did not talk about Lucifer choosing to be the king of hell he was cast out he was cast well, down into hell yeah like Go ahead. there's ways of interpreting it just because like there's so many stories yeah but also um 
in this case, like the choicefulness was the choice to rebel against God in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of what Akio is referring to here is the very famous quote from Milton's Paradise Lost, which is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Um, Where, (laughs) yeah, where (laughs) Akio is drawing a very clear parallel between himself and Lucifer in this right. moment where he where he's saying like he is he's calling himself the king of hell. Yeah. Oh, 100%. <laughs> and also and also saying that he chose this. Yes, exactly. Like when you choose to tell a version of a story, you are most likely telling the version that A you grew up with or B you identify most with. It's probably the latter in this case. Yeah, and th- this is one of those rare I think actually unguarded moments, partly because Utana is an adorable dum dum who doesn't <laughs> get the reference. <laughs> God bless. It <laughs> doesn't get the implications of what he's saying. But also, like, it's a very revealing moment to, for him to be admitting that the part of this that he identifies with and the part of like his own name that he identifies with is to be the king of hell. Like, He is saying he chose to rule over Otori Academy, which he is equating to hell. Yep. Rather than be whatever he has to be in heaven, which is, I guess, outside of Otori Academy. A Um, good person? Like, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) He's chosen that this domain of this school is going to be his absolutely, rather than actually allow the independence that he talked about in that scene with Toga at the beginning. Or even growing up. Yeah. I also think it's interesting him him aligning himself or identifying with Lucifer. He also identifies with the story or the part of the story that it's a star that cannot shine unless the sun sets. Meaning he feels as if he is being outshone constantly, which to be fair, he is. <laughs> Anthea is the true star here. So, And the show reminds us of this because mm-hmm. just like with Mikage and Mamiya, when they were posed in that painting referencing Olympia, the painting Olympia, where there's the maid that is never talked about in lieu of talking about the relationship between the character Olympia and the viewer, there's a maid in the scene who is going unnoticed. In this moment, we have Anthe going unnoticed by the two of them. And every time he talks about the sun needing to set in order for the the morning star to shine, it keeps cutting back to Anthe watching them. And she's got a glow in her glasses from the reflection of the projector where we can't see her eyes. Yeah. So we don't know her eyes are obscured. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know what she's thinking as she's slowly approaching them and remind, let me remind the audience. He's still got his arm around Utena. Uh, And also I do want to take this moment to say, Hey man, once again, if you would leave fucking high school, you wouldn't get outshone by a fucking high schooler. (laughs) maybe take the maybe take this time to go fucking shine in the adult professional world like an adult would 
<laughs> you're choosing this. There is choice here. Uh, but anyhow. But this is a fairy tale world of princes and brides. And how would he be a prince in the real world? Uh, figure it out. <laughs> Go figure it out for yourself, man. So what do you think Anthea is thinking as she's seeing the two of them? Well, I know he did that to fuck with her. He had to have. I mean, one, it's imposing control on Utena. Like, it's starting to lay the charms. The the way that he's so, like, oh, and, like, removes his hand from Utena is, like, ah. It's, I feel like it's something that somebody who's in a relationship might do to make their the other person jealous. Okay. That's why I feel like it's a little on purpose to fuck with Anthe. You don't think that he wants Utena for Utena? I don't know. I mean, not for Utena as a person, no. Maybe for her role? Sure. Or the connection? No, I wouldn't even say for the connection she has with Anthe. He wants something about Utena, but I don't think it's for who she is. Okay. So I'd ask the, the question, though. What do you think Anthe is thinking? Ah, uh, yes. Oh, man. We know so little about... We know so little about how she actually feels about Akio at this point. We do get a glimpse of something at the end of the episode. So I don't know if it's fear. I don't know if it's jealousy. It could be both. I mean, when you're in a abusive situation... I could see it being both because um, she's being manipulated too. Fear of Akio or fear for Utena or fear on Utena's behalf, like fear for Utena's safety. Yeah, I think potentially fear for Utena's safety, but then also potentially a jealousy. Um, okay. And I, I don't know who it would be over at this point. Because I don't know how she really feels about her relationship with Akio. You know, it could be fear for Utena's safety and then also jealousy that he's moving in on Utena. Or jealousy of somebody else being that close to Utena. It could be both. Okay. I would, you know? I might put out that, like, that feeling of jealousy is a fear of losing Akio. Mm. As abusive as this dynamic is it is a stable dynamic and i think there might be some fear of losing it yeah i mean i could see that that's why i was like with abusive relationships you never really know it it's so complicated that somebody in that situation could feel all of those things right the next scene is in my opinion the most precious of this episode oh absolutely get- no doubt yeah we get um confirmation of what the bed looks like i had speculated (laughs) (laughs) i had speculated that it was a heart or a rose and instead it's like these two half moons or just semicircles um connecting where their heads would be on each side which is cute it is one of the most adorable beds ever it's so fucking cute it's a perfect bed for just good friends. <laughs> and they were roommates. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a perfect bed for gal pal roommates. 
Mm -hmm. Just friends, no shenanigans to be seen here. (laughs) At all. There's no room for hand-holding, so toss that out of your minds. Except there there absolutely is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's one of the things we actually do get to see in this episode, is them holding hands. Yeah, it was so sweet. I literally wrote in my notes, they hold hands! Exclamation points! (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so they are talking about Akio, actually, um, at first. And Utena says, whenever he talks about the stars, he looks as though he's lost something precious. Oh, before that, she's talking positively about him. She says Mm. that he's such a nice guy, except... And like... The way Anthe asks about this caveat that Utena is going to be sharing is like this very tellingly hopeful question that she asks. Uh, Because like, I think cutting back to our conversation just now about like the jealousy and the fear, Anthe knows the safest place for Utena is far away from Akio. Yeah. And yet, here they are living under the same roof as him, and she is seeing Utena get closer to him. And like I still think like it, there's like that two-sided piece of it also being fear of losing Akio to Utena. So like Utena saying that there's a but on her admiration for Akio is a source of hope for Anthe because you know if you're like totally over the moon about somebody, there's not gonna be a but. <laughs> And also, I wonder if because she's dealt with Akio for so long and seen the ugly, the bad, if maybe she just wants somebody else to see that, too. Fair. That's fair. What does she say with the butt? Is that the whole he talks about? Oh, I'd have to look it up at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Because I didn't write that down. I think does she just I think she just repeats the way she says, except. Ah, no, but I mean, does Utena just trail off or does she say the whole like he looks as though he's lost something precious? No, she trails off and that's when Anthe ah. asks. Okay. They talk about Akio seeming lonely. One of them says something interesting here about, and I think it's Utena at first, saying something about it seeming familiar to her. Yeah, that's Utena. She says that his loneliness seems familiar to her. Yes. And then Anthe just goes, yeah, there are times that you seem familiar to me as well, Utena. Which like, what? Excuse me? That's the first time we've heard her say that. (laughs) Right. So like... What did you make of that? I wonder, because in this episode, they allude later to Akio potentially being the the prince that was at the funeral um, of Utena's parents. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder if she was there with him or if she's just saying, you seem familiar to me like you remind me of the prince. Right. Again, a scenario where it could be both. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do feel like wouldn't Anthe, maybe not though, with her being the Rose Bride and there being all that kind of weird mask stuff. Um, but I, I wonder if she would have said something earlier to Utena about 
seeing her at the funeral? Like, about knowing her as a child? Maybe not, though. Given how secretive Anthe is about everything, yeah, I think the fact that she said anything now is itself huge progress. Yeah. And this is where Utena says, like, the line of the episode, or several lines, rather. Like, if you ever have a problem, come to me first. We can help each other through anything. I want us to be friends like that. And that's so sweet. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And as she's saying this, we get this flashback to Utena in the coffin. Yes. And also to... Is this where it reminds Anthe of when she was little? I believe so. Yeah. So Anthe also gets a flashback to her own childhood where she's hugging someone that looks like the prince, but again, could be the prince or Akio, um, and saying something very similar to him about like, we can get through anything together. I'm going to help you. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the first time that we are seeing that scenario like whatever that scene is we're getting our first taste of it just like in the first plot arc we got some of these quicker flashbacks of Utena before we got like the big long one that shows like everything that went down between her and Sionji and Toga now we're getting a taste of Anthe's past with this princely figure and this is also where they hold hands it is and it's so cute and it's so sweet. And Anthe was going to say something to Utena. Yeah, she was going to confess something. She says, the truth is I... And then pauses and says, never mind. Which, don't hold out on us, girl. <laughs> I want to know those secrets. So then we have the red and green boys in the kendo dueling uh, room. The Christmas and... time boys. <laughs> yep. So this goes back to, like, just their colors in general of them being opposite colors because like red and green are opposite sides of one another on like a traditional color wheel um and of course like opposites they cannot escape one another (laughs) (laughs) they are they're like they're more like magnets than color opposites here um Sionji is protesting that, like, since he's given up the dueling game, he is devoting himself again to his kendo practice, and he's going to be the champion this year. Um, He's finally, like, shed all of his distractions, and he is going to finally beat Toga. And Toga, big swinging dick that he is, has no care in the world for whatever Sionji has just devoted himself to. He's like, no, you're being an idiot. You're going to come back and duel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Sionji even says, like, he hates Toga's conceit of just, like, the way that he just assumes he has power and control wherever he goes. And he says, in your heart, you laugh at me, but you still lost to Utena. And, of course, Toga bites right back with, well, so did you. <laughs> and, and technically speaking, of all the duelists, Sionji has lost the most times to Utena. Yeah. Which, on the one hand, shows his determination. He's also fought her the most times. Yeah. But he has lost more than anyone else, too. So it's pretty precious of him to throw that at Toga. 
<laughs> Sionji living in the glassiest of mansions, throwing the largest of stones. <laughs> but this is where Toga says, finally, let's cut the bullshit. There's someone I want you to meet. And now we get the ritual of this season of the show, which is Toga acting as like handmade to Akio. Like he is the one who is ushering people to their fate with Akio. Um, and he has this speech that he gives and I'll read it here. He says, can you hear it? If your soul has not truly given up, then you can hear the sound that races through the end of the world. And as he's giving this speech, it's intercut with shots of uh, Akio revving the engine on his car. And then the speech always ends with the car driving into the scene. <laughs> and Toga with his shirt open triumphantly. <laughs> uh, and full disclosure with the revving of the engine, I fully thought it was going to come through the background of the scene and just run one of them over. <laughs> I really did. I was like, Toga's like open arms waiting for this. I don't know if Sionji's gonna get run over. <laughs> but somebody's getting got. But yeah, like this is another one of those things though where watch for this. Sionji gave up. He's like, I'm out. I am done. He tries to quit. And what does Toga do? He does the same thing that he does in the first season. He shows up and starts tempting them again. And in this case, he is now doing it explicitly on Akio's behalf. And he whispers in, in Sionji's ear and is like, I don't think you've actually given up. I think you still hope you can win this thing. Let's go prove it. And so that's when Akio shows up with the car. Yep. And they go on their ride and Sionji, you can tell, is still just not having it. <laughs> He's like, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then they talk about friendship. And Sionji says, true friendship doesn't exist in this world. I know so. And Toga is like, is that what you really believe? And there's a flashback to them as as their younger selves and Toga helping Sionji bandage up one of his wounds from kendo practice. And very notably, Akio is silent through all of this. He is letting Toga do all of the work talking to Sionji. Yeah. His part in this has not come up yet. He knows what part he's going to play and he's waiting for that moment. And also notably, Sionji recognizes the chairman. Like, when they get into the car, he recognizes him. So he's seen this guy before. Maybe not in this outfit. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> but he isn't a mystery to him. And they also talk about, in the car, Toga brings up, do you remember the girl we found in that coffin? And Sionji's like, man, come on. Did that even really happen at this point? <laughs> and... Toga keeps going and talks about her wanting to find something eternal and says that night it was Akio who showed her something eternal and saved her, which him being like a, a child predator and Toga saying that 
like does not sit very well. What oh yeah. What do you mean? What do you mean he <laughs> showed her a child, something eternal? I don't I don't, I don't like wanna get that. like I don't want to get like too sexual with that piece. I think this is definitely much more a grooming situation of he shows up and imprints upon her very early on as yeah. someone to be trusted. Not necessarily yeah. that like he whips it out right then and there. Yeah, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to stick to the Toga thing for just one second here. And that is to point out that Toga knows which button to push with Sionji. He names Sionji's quest for eternity when Sionji won't say it. He asks him what he wants and Sionji doesn't answer him. He brushes off the question. So Toga names it. So now we know that Toga knows what's up with the duelists. At least so far, like with this first one, we know that Toga's in on the, you know, the oppo research on each of the duelists. <laughs> yeah. So he has now like officially definitely become uh, Akio's handmaiden for all of this. Like he is privy to whatever Akio knows, at least about this stuff. And he is now willing to use it. And he's using it in Akio's service, not his own now. Yeah. Because like in the first season, he was doing it to manipulate Utena into position so that he could defeat Utena and become Utena's prince. Now, it's not entirely clear what Toga's upside of all of this is, except for proximity to power. And he is learning how to be the most toxic of men from the best. Yeah. Akio has found his protege. Toga has found his mentor. And the two of them are now going to rip through this school together. Yup. And I don't want to lose sight of the fact that in all of this, Toga himself is still a minor who is being manipulated by an adult. So like, as much responsibility as I want to lay at Toga's feet for going along with this, I don't want to ever lose sight of the fact that the most powerful person in this school has personally chosen him to be his sidekick and is now teaching him how to be the worst kind of man. Yeah, manipula manipulating him right along with the rest of them. Because like, we know that whatever has gone on with the Kiryu family. And we will find out like what is up with the Kiryu family in a few episodes. And there's going to be a lot more to talk about once we get there about like the dynamics between him and Nanami and uh, like what was happening with like his entire personality. Really? We'll find that out in a bit, but at least at this moment, it dovetails with Toga's constant need to be the best, to be the chosen one, to be, um, to be recognized as better than everyone else. You know, he, you don't accidentally become student council president. You don't accidentally become the best kendo duelist. You have to need to be those things. Yeah. <laughs> like some internal psychological need has to compel you to be those things. Just like Nanami has her internal compulsion to take over the student council jury would have been perfectly capable of it mickey would have been perfectly capable of it but it was nanami who felt the absolute need to 
fill that role. Partly because like she's imitating Toga, her idol, but also like that tells us something about Toga as well. And so now we have Toga as the right-hand man of the chairman. Again, he is grasping for the highest power he can get his hands on. Yeah, and playing in a whole other league than the rest of the students or even the student council. Yeah. I mean, I keep thinking about how he's returned to the school and not shown hide nor hair of himself back at the student council. Exactly. His old his old self would have immediately wanted that power back, but he has something better now in his mind. Yep, he has a higher power that he can call on. And now he's looking at the student council and being like, I am over here playing chess and you are playing checkers. Yeah. Finally, at the end of this scene, Sionji calls out Akio and wants to know just who the hell is he anyway. And he puts a hand on Akio's shoulder. And this is where Akio smirks. And he again references the throb of the engine. And he says, let me show you the end of the world. And then he pulls this ghost rider shit where he hops out of the driver's seat and onto the hood of the car and just lets the car go. (laughs) Yeah, he pulls his best cowabunga dude and flips on the top of that car as if it is a surfboard and just lets it ride. (laughs) That shit was crazy. If somebody ever did that in the car with me, I am immediately jumping out because I am not going to (laughs) be... Tuck and roll, Sionji. Get out of there. (laughs) Yeah. I am not going to be in that fucking death trap (laughs) and in that ball of fire when it comes down. But something about this where Akio seemingly relinquishes control of the car and is just riding on top of the hood with no abandon, no care in the world whatsoever, and says something to the effect, like one of them says something to the effect of, let me show you the end of the world. And they take Sionji there, Mm -hmm. and he comes back a changed man. Oh, yeah. So, again, the car is a metaphor for sex. But what the fuck does that mean, Kobe Bryant? Like, (laughs) (laughs) that's, yes, I get the metaphor. What the fuck is the end of the world? What are y'all talking about? Did you get to the end of the street and not crash? Like, I imagine that this the end of this road is just like a brick wall, like a Looney Tunes style brick wall. (laughs) (laughs) They have to avoid. I don't know if they just, if Akio reveals himself then to be the end of the world to them. It doesn't quite seem like that's what it is, but something changes Sionji so To such a degree that he is willing to come back from this encounter and immediately is back on that dual bullshit. Yeah, because the very next scene opens with Utana talking about how she never gets letters from the end of the world. So she doesn't know what the student council is talking about. Because like Nikki and Juri go to her about what's happening. And Nikki Nikki tells her about the gondola inside inside the pillar, which... It's an elevator. Um, and this is when Sionji rolls up. And like you said, he's a changed man. Um, like Part of the, the sex metaphor 
and I don't want to like dwell on this too long because they are minors is just like the way he walks into this scene is like dudes in high school would walk into the school the first time they had sex. Like I can't unsee that having like grown up seeing that, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it's a little bit more unhinged. Yeah. That's, that's the metaphor level, but yeah, (laughs) he's got like a crazy look in his eye. (laughs) Yeah. This is a renewed sense of purpose as opposed to like just getting laid. He has found something like he has rediscovered why he needs to get something eternal. And he has that old look in his eye again of that like jealous lover, I guess is the best way to put it. But it's just this wide eyed, like kind of frothing at the mouth look almost of like jealousy and possessiveness over Anthe. Whereas from the moment he's come back to the school until now, he has not shown anything of that. And all of a sudden, this encounter and this car ride has just completely changed him back to this person, regressed him completely. Right. He he tells Mickey that, like, you wouldn't understand what has changed about me, even if I explained it to you. And then to prove he is back to he's back on his bullshit. He slaps Mickey. Because yeah. why not? Because <laughs> we're back then, to being slap happy Sionji. Yeah. So when when Utena goes to help Mickey, he takes the opportunity to grab Anthe because again, he is back to somebody who does not understand boundaries. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he even threw Choo Choo at one point. Yeah. He has been shown once again by the two most toxic men in the world what it means to be a toxic man. Like, he has been reminded how to embrace the dark side of masculinity. He was almost free of it. And then, like masculinity does, it is self-enforcing. If you see a guy breaking the rules, you have to correct him. And so Toga and Akio come to correct Sionji and remind him how to be the worst kind of asshole. It's just so unfortunate. Patriarchy, jazz hands. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested to see what happens to Sionji after this. Um, because I just would really like to see somebody turn over a new leaf in this show. Like, <laughs> it would be nice. And he was so close to growth and becoming a new phase of a new person. And nope. Yeah, that's going to be a repeated theme in this arc of the show is all the characters approaching growth. And then as is talked about, like the crab bucket effect or um, or the nail that sticks out, like they have to be pounded back down. They have to be dragged back into the muck. And this is something that's talked about when someone tries to change themselves or their behavior patterns, etc. Right. Like, there is a moment of relapse. Right. And not just relapse. This is a dynamic that plays out, like, especially in, like, addiction, but also in abusive uh, family dynamics, where Mm -hmm. the moment one person starts to try and change, if they don't separate themselves from the people who hold them in those patterns, 
they will fall back into those patterns because the other people in that person's life benefit somehow from that person being in that pattern of behavior. This is where like addiction codependency comes from, where the codependent person needs the addict to be as sick as they are in order to justify their own bad behavior. Yeah. Um, otherwise, like if the codependent was holding themselves accountable, they would be doing a better job of holding the addict accountable. Um, it's the same thing that happens in like abusive family dynamics, where if you try and change one person or help one person to change themselves, I should put it that way. Um, if you're trying to help one person in a toxic family situation, when that person starts to set boundaries for the first time, the family will gang up on them in order to force them back into their old ways because they don't want the situation to change. They don't want the boundaries to change. They were yeah. getting something from that person not setting appropriate boundaries. They were getting access that they have come to rely upon. And now that this person is saying, actually, I'm not going to show up to the party if you're going to behave this way. I'm not going to go to Thanksgiving dinner if you're going to talk about my partner that way. I'm not going to, you know, um, I'm not going to lend you money anymore because it's just not, uh, it's just not an appropriate thing uh, to be doing at this point, given whatever else in the past, you know? So if someone tries to change the dynamic with a family, the family will gang up on them to sabotage that attempt at change. This is exactly what we are seeing in this plot arc. All of the characters are, have gone through the first two duels with Utena. They have been dragged down to the depths of their being by the people closest to them in the Black Rose arc. They are all on the precipice of change. And so Akio and Toga have to roll in and drag them back into their old dynamic. Which again plays into that whole biblical trope of, or comparison rather, of Akio wanting to compare himself to being Lucifer, the king of hell, and being that tempter, you know, the person that drags them back into that quote unquote worst version of themselves. He wants yeah, to encourage that bad. Yeah, exactly. He wants to encourage that bad behavior. And keep them from changing. So now we have the introduction or the reintroduction of Aiko and Biko, the first two shadow girls that we saw from the student council arc. And this is the first time that we get the iconic line, Kashira Kashira, Gozonji Kashira. And this is going to be how they introduce all of their uh, all of their skits in this arc of the show. Last last time with the Black Rose saga. Seiko, the individual shadow girl, um, introduced herself with the go guy, go guy. Um, mm -hmm. And so this time we have a new intro for them. They start out by talking about how, uh, once again, someone is going up to the dueling arena. And they talk about how nostalgic it feels to be able to say that again, because they've been gone for an entire plot arc. And they yeah. talk about how two are better than one. Because there's mm. half the suffering and double the pleasure. And then immediately they start arguing about one of them taking the other's shampoo, one of them eating the other's pudding, even though the pudding was two weeks old. <laughs> <laughs> and they say, um, 
it's hard to work as a team, which is foreshadowing this time, as opposed to commentary on what came before. This time we're foreshadowing the duel, talking about how Utna and Anthe now have to work together in the duel. There is a little bit of commentary on the past part of this episode, where at the beginning of the episode, when we're seeing like them moving into the chairman's room and all of that, um, and then the scene with Akio and the projector, um, and the way that like Anthe is seeing this and is possibly jealous, possibly fearful. You know, we see the first hints. I, w- I would argue that we've seen some before, but we see the first like very clear hints of a division between Utna and Anthe. Yeah. And the shadow girls are naming it here that it's hard to work together. And I also feel like the two people are better than for this job than one is both talking about Utena and Anthe and also Toga and Akio. It's talking about both pairs that are working together right now. Also, they are throwing shade at Seiko. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, bless her heart, she did great. She acted her heart out. Having to play all the roles at one time? Right. Give some love for Seiko, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, also an alien because she left in a spaceship, a UFO. So Yeah, uh, and this opens with a UFO crash. So yeah. uh, <laughs> we just keep seeing how uh, the shadow players are all aliens. Again, just love that for me, that at least one of my tinfoil hat conspiracies came true. (laughs) Aliens in Utena confirmed. (laughs) So we also get a new duel sequence, like just flat out. Yeah, Um, the intro. Yeah, where we see a new perspective on the dueling arena, like how it's approached and it's like you cut through water to get there. Yeah, so I have, like, detailed shot-by-shot notes of this. <laughs> Hell yeah. So, the new sequence. As we're approaching the dueling arena, we see the track go sweeping by. So, one of the things that we've seen all along is Utina is a track runner. Um, in, like, the body-swapping episode, we got to see Anthe doing uh, track. But track is clearly associated with Utna as a sport that she is an active participant in. So we get this visual reminder of Utna right off the bat. We are entering her space now. She's been the champion for two arcs. Um, this is her space, and we are being reminded of that as we approach. And then we get the waterfall. Um, and then as we approach the pillar with the stairs, instead of that like sharp, 30 degree angle that it's at we're approaching it straight on and as we approach pillars go sweeping by on each side which gives like a sense of both speed and distance of just like how large the forest is then we have anthe who disappears completely and her clothes fall to the floor utina enters the elevator and anthe rises nude then her clothing appears. Then the, the, the bride dress appears. Then we get this shot of a tree growing through Anthe's old clothes. Then we have the shots, like, like the henshin sequence of Anthe dressing Utana. Like she sweeps her hands over Utana and her new uniform appears. 
the dress that was being like the school uniform that was being held up by the tree the tree now blooms then we get this shot that i describe as the wedding shot <laughs> because it is utana and anthe posed side by side like you would at a wedding we have the groom and the bride because like utana's military inspired masculine uniform and anthe's dress we get this perfect side-by-side -side composition with a rose border all around it. It starts in silhouette, then appears in full color. And it is just a gorgeous wedding shot. That's what this reminds me of. And then at the very end, the car shows up to deliver, yeah. the, to deliver the other duelist. And also the tree that grew out of the of Anthe's uniform is a rose bush. Yes. That's just that's just it. It's not even it like the way that it's drawn makes you think that a tree is growing through it and then it's just this massive overflowing rose bush that like takes up the entire space and just keeps expanding out with pink so, roses, might I add. Yeah. Yeah. We've got Utana's color in there. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the symbolism is there? Cuz like of all the rest of it Sure, we've got some pretty obvious stuff like the elevator going up, the ascension, the transformation. I think probably the most obscure is this rose bush. So what's your take on it? I mean, this whole episode, there have been these like one to two second lingering shots on different pink roses. And then it finally shows this one as kind of like the source. Like we've seen at least two different vases in Akio's home with these pink roses um, at the beginning of the episode. For me, I feel like there's something about like divinity here, but I'm not quite grasping it yet. Okay. Because again, like everything with the episode and with Akio so far has been talking about doing biblical parallels and all this different stuff with things in the Bible. And then the rose imagery, the celestial imagery that's everywhere, those like beautiful paintings and uh, images of the sky. And then you have this rose bush expanding and growing out of this school uniform. I think if anything, it's probably supposed to be a metaphor for like maturity like if this is if we're talking about the rose bride being anthe's like i hate to use this term but final form <laughs> um you know like the peak of her as a like entering maturity and womanhood there's that i also think it's just a statement on the time shenanigans and fuckery because of the way that this <laughs> because of the way that this bush grows so rapidly and then just keeps growing to me it just points to more of the time shenanigans and how time is just a thing here that we play with uh and i if i want to make a rose bush <laughs> come to full maturity and fruition in the blink of an eye i will i think there's also something to be said here about like death and rebirth where yeah 
Anthe disappears and her clothes are left behind and something is growing in its place. And the thing that's growing in its place is a metaphor for Utena. Yeah, for sure. Like, um, you have this, you have whatever was there before being replaced with Utena in Anthe's heart. Oh, that's so sweet. There's also a, an almost like sinister element to that as well, where we have Anthe abandoning her form as a student to become the Rose Bride for Utena. Yeah, and it's not exactly healthy, is it? I mean, it would be one thing if the rose bush grew with the colors for representing both of them, but doing it this way leaves no room for Anthe herself as a person still. Right, it's replaced her. Yeah, which is still not good. You know? Again, I argue not everything that Utena does to be a hero is actually a good thing. <laughs> Well, and two, I think this is not just Utena, but I think it's also Anthe, because this is kind of what she knows. I think she's still scared to become her own person. That's new. That's different. She doesn't know or remember what that feels like because she's been with Akio for so long. Yeah. That's scary for somebody to who's been... That's scary for somebody who has been under an abusive relationship for so long, for so much of their life, to have that abusive, if still codependent piece ripped out and nothing replace it. Of course you want to replace it with something else. Right. And like, is it just hopping from one problem to another? Like, right. arguably, you know, I cannot imagine Utna being abusive in the way that Akio is. No. At the same time, there is a part of Anthe in the state that Anthe is in now that Utna is drawn to. And that is the part that she can rescue. Yeah. What happens if like five years, 10 years from now, they come to the realization, the very hard realization, that Anthe no longer needs rescuing? Do they fall into a pattern where they create crises in order to keep the dynamic? Or do they find a way to a healthier place between the two of them? You know, like those are the two roads you can go down with that dynamic. Yeah. Like, is their home life going to be one of permanent crisis in order to preserve the relationship that they have as it is? Or do they grow together and become better people that are more mutually supportive? Yeah. So then we have the dual proper. Oh, sorry. What was that? Oh, no, I was going to say either way, 10 out of 10 sequence. This new sequence is like chef's kiss. So good. Everything. Um, I love the like <laughs> sacrificial walk up the stairs and the determined look. But like this gives this new sequence gives so much in just those few minutes. On another symbolic level, Utena has been given access to the chairman's residence and now has the privilege of using the elevator. Yeah. Freely. She has free access to the elevator, which includes both the elevator in the tower and the elevator in the dueling arena. Yeah. And the fucking car being up there on the dueling arena absolutely sent me. 
take <laughs> this very serious the drive a poised... Corvette Roadster up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> this very serious poised like moment of the opening sequence and then the fucking car. Like <laughs> I just can't. So one thing that I mentioned way back was to put a pin in your observation that I think it was during a Mickey duel. The archway behind them was open. Mm-hmm. And that was the only time we ever saw that up until now, where now the archway opens to make space for the car. Oh, okay. I didn't notice that. And that was something that like, it caught me off guard when you pointed it out at this point, like 20 episodes ago. (laughs) (laughs) But there was a moment where you pointed out like, hey, that archway is open. Like it had split apart in that shot. And I'd said, put a pin in that because that's a thing that's going to happen in the future. And now it happens every dual intro uh, because it's making space for the car to appear. Okay. Interesting. So we get to the dual proper and Utina is arguing with Sionji about looking at things from Anthe's point of view. And he reiterates his like manifesto of the bride doesn't matter. And enlightened assholes like myself understand that The bride has no real feelings. She's just an object because he has been completely re-educated in the school of toxic masculinity. It is interesting, though, that he argues that she has no will of her own. I could see why he thinks that after just after just being exposed to Akio. I think he showed them some shit about. (laughs) it's an and or situation him being the end of the world potentially and or some shit about the rose bride and about controlling anthe because then the reddit black pill forums (laughs) oh god (laughs) Um, incels (laughs) (laughs) i do i think that he showed or told them had to been shown something about Anthe and the Rose Bride for him to come back so revved up, pardon the pun, like this about Anthe and the Rose Bride again and talking about she has no will of her own. Why is he so sure in that? What did Akio feed him to make him think that again? But interestingly, with this duel, it starts and this is the first duel, I think that we don't see Utena pull the sword out of Anthe to start it. That was part of the ritual before. It is not here now. Right. And importantly, the duel song doesn't start when the duel starts. They are fighting, and she's got the sword of Dios, or she's got the like less powerful sword of Dios, like before the power of Dios appears and all of that. But she has, you know, the signature sword with like that lacquered handle and all of that. Um because they, they will say that like the power of Dios didn't show up in the stool. Um, but as they're fighting, every time their swords clash, the, the wheels on the cars stop spinning. Like they've been forced to, to break. Um, and eventually, like as they're clashing, Utena's sword disappears completely. It turns red and just fades away. And 
she ends up having to like dodge out of the way of everything. And this is where the actual dual song starts. And notably, this song, Virtual Star Embryology, is also going to be the end song for this plot arc. We get a new end sequence in this plot arc, and this song, not this version, but a different version of this very song, is going to be our closing sequence for the rest of this arc. Um, We get a shot where now, instead of just Toga being on that platform watching, Akio is up there with him watching. They both have their opera glasses out (laughs) and are are watching the duel. Yeah. Um, And as she's watching Utena dodge Sionji's attacks, Anthe remembers what Utena said about offering to be her friend who she can come to with anything. And this is when Anthe jumps in to save Utena from an attack from Sionji. Yeah, she goes from passive observant to actively taking part in the duel, which she has only kind of interfered one other time. She does it psychologically the other time. Yeah, right. This is the first, like, it almost is like the memory of Utena saying that shakes her out of just being a passive observant observer it shakes her out of it and she's more conscious and present in the moment as opposed to dissociating during the duel yeah and defends utena she pulls her out of the way of getting hit yeah and then she offers to help utena and this time says um rose of nobility come forth and she draws a sword out of utena this time instead of it being drawn out of Anthe and this reversal becomes incredibly important going forward and this time they say grant us the power to revolutionize the world and the rest of the duel proceeds like pretty standard they they clash eventually she wins when she wins this time the cars crash Sionji's green rose petals go flying up into the air we end the duel on a shot of Anthe smiling, like very openly showing that she is pleased with the outcome of this duel. Which I don't think she's ever done before. I think she has, but not quite this openly, not in the scene itself. By the way, Toga and Akio talk about the power of Dios didn't come down this time, but it did. So I don't know if they just couldn't see it, but he sure did come out of that castle and like kiss Utena on the mouth. (laughs) Like normally he would just like phase into her body with her and like merge and become one. Uh, This time she's like looking up and they kissed. They kissed. (laughs) They don't don't kiss. (laughs) What do you mean? No, they don't. That's like how he. <laughs> That's how the power came down into her. into her. We don't see a kiss there. She's I looking mean, up. S- he's coming down, and then the next thing we see is her taking a swipe at at Sionji. Yeah, but that was totally implied. <laughs> it was. That was totally implied. So what they say there, though, is the sword of Dios didn't appear. Ah, okay. Um. Which is like the new 
the new normal of all of this. Um, but the conversation that they are having when they're talking about this, like, so th- they were on this platform watching the duels play out. And then it's the two of them lounging in a bed with their clothes like half undone. And they're just like rolling around on these lavish silk sheets. And Akio asks, are you enjoying this game? And Toga responds, you're an evil man, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah. But makes no move to leave either. (laughs) Yeah. Because like, once again, he's being indoctrinated into this role. Like, if Akio ever leaves or dies or whatever, it is very easy to assume Toga taking over. Yeah, which is a scary thought. Then we have the final scene of this episode. And I am going to give a content warning for implied sexual assault. At no point in the series is it ever depicted directly. But in order to analyze a lot of these scenes, we will have to acknowledge that that is what's going on in these scenes. So in the final scene of the episode, we are in the chairman's office. And this is another moment where we're going to have implied sexual assault. So Akio is musing over the fact that the sword of Dios didn't appear and Anthe is present and he instructs her to come to him. And for the first time, we see her hesitate. She flinches at the thought of approaching him. She physically recoils from this. So he asserts his control by physically forcing her to come to him. He grabs her violently and pulls her toward him. We cut to Utina waiting for Anthe to come to bed. We see Anthe's glasses set aside. And the other time that we've seen this was the other time back in, I think, episode 13 or 14. I think it was episode 13. Um, the, The time where we see her glasses set aside is another instance where it is implied that Akio is assaulting Anthe. And then the closing shot of this episode is Anthe staring upward. And we have Akio's body drawn over her, except instead of seeing his skin, we see the night sky, which is a visual metaphor for Akio. Yep. Bringing that morning star image full circle. This is one of those moments that I had mentioned earlier about how this is a shot that is, I would say, too lovingly animated, right? Like Utana's hair, when she's laying in bed, staring upward, waiting for Anthe to come back, and then Anthe underneath Akio. These shots get an attention to detail that we do not see throughout the rest of this episode. Even though, as the start of a new arc, there is a significantly higher budget and... You can see it throughout the episode. Even with that, these up these shots stand out for how much detail this put into them. These yeah. are art shots. These are shots that you would expect them to be making prints of, which is something I want to cringe out of my skin about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I get why they drew Akio that way with the comparison and then also like skating under just under the whole this is sexual assault yep <laughs> scenario um but yeah it is 
disturbingly beautiful the way that the the way that they drew him as being composed of stars so and on that note no go ahead yeah. so then we have the ending sequence which is a new ending sequence for the show and it is throughout a significant portion of it utana rising in the elevator and we see different floors going by and then we have utana and anthe together and we close on the castle with feathers flying in the wind. The song, though, and we skipped over it when talking about the duel, but this is also a duel song, and it's the closing song of the episode, which is Virtual Star Embryology. And going with this theme of, of stars and astronomy, this song is all about the motion of the heavens, like the motion of the planets. Uh, they talk about the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, uh, Jupiter, Saturn, um, all the other stars. And it's talking about the movement of the heavens. And then it closes on the, the idea of it's all just empty movement. And I'm reminded of uh, the Shakespeare quote from Macbeth about sound and fury signifying nothing. That speech itself is about how players on a stage are just going through the motions. It doesn't mean anything. And mm. and we know that like so much of Utana takes place in a very theatrical way, as almost as if this is a, a play being put on. And so then we come back to this idea in the song of again, it is empty movement. It is meaningless motion. I I certainly hope not. I mean, you hope that this all means, again, just kind of like with the whole Sionji character development and character arc, you hope that this all means something and that it's not for nothing. That there is growth and a good conclusion at the end of this and not just, and here goes the cycle again. So I'm really hoping that it's not foreshadowing, but it probably is. About the show's ending. I think and... it's no accident that we got this song when we did, though, either. Because yeah. we just had a plot arc that showed us that everything that is going on with Utana right now and the student council and all of that, it is another turning of a cycle that has played out at this school. 20 years ago, it was, Mika or it was Nomuro and the 100 Boys and Mamiya and Tokiko and all of them. Akio was still at the center of that. Now we come to the present day and it is Toga and Sionji and Miki and Juri and Nanami and Utna. And again, we have a cycle playing out where this song draws a parallel because it was Sionji's song. It draws a parallel between Sionji and Akio that Sionji is back in a cycle that he has been in before. He almost escaped from it, but now he is back in the cycle and none of it matters. He isn't going to beat Utana. He is not good enough. And rather than escape, he is stuck once again. And it explicitly draws a connection between the cycle that Sionji is going through and a cycle that Akio is going through. Where from Akio's perspective, there is no growth. 
There is no change. We're just doing this again. And I think it also betrays that both of them still have some nugget of hope because the hope is what drew the hope is what drew Sionji back into the dueling game. It's how Toga tempted him. The hope is why is why Akio doesn't just didn't just let Nomuro burn the entire school down. It's why you know he starts over again with a student council. Yeah. And so I think the song is as much about his cynicism as anything. And of course, like I'm right with you. As an audience member, I want it to mean something. I want to see something different this time with Utna than what we saw with Namuro. Right. The other pink-haired pseudo protagonist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what do you what's your prediction for next time? So we're getting a rinse and repeat uh i predict of all all of our future duels i think they're just going to proceed in the same order that they did in the first arc uh because next time we have mickey who was directly after sionji so i think after that we'll probably have jury but um it talked about kozue falling out of a building which what the fuck um (laughs) (laughs) oh good god um, and so, you know, obviously that's going to shake up Mickey, um, because he's still very attached to his sister. It'll be interesting to see what, if anything has changed between them since their like attempt at repairing their relationship from the first, first arc. Um, yeah. And I know Mickey is going to just from the dialogue, of the preview. I know Mickey is going to try to fight Utena again. I just can't imagine what it is that brings him, him to that point again. Unless it's something about protecting Kozue. But, I mean, she can... I know she just fell out of a building, but she can really protect herself. Like, she's emphasized that over and over as her own agency. So, I don't know. Yeah, but also, like with Sionji... I'm wondering if these are going to be just like clean rinse and repeat or if we're going to have more insight this time. Because like with Sionji, part of the meaning of his duel is the meaningless of repeating the cycle. But that's because he was locked in a toxic rivalry with Toga. There's a different dynamic going on between Nikki and Kozue and whatever happens there I think is also going to be informed by what we saw in the Black Rose. Because that's when we learned all about Kozue. Yeah. Yeah, and even just a different dynamic between Mickey and Utena versus Sionji and Utena. Because they... Sionji and Utena do not have any kind of rapport (laughs) whatsoever. She tolerates him just barely. Her and Mickey (laughs) have like... (laughs) Her and Mickey have formed a friendship. Yeah. So this is going to be another painful duel i think for utana probably i'm i'm betting that she is going to experience it as a betrayal again yeah and probably disappointment too like mickey again man we just got over this (laughs) (laughs) so if you would like to send in your comments thoughts questions all tinfoil hat conspiracy theories about this show uh, you can send those into absolute destiny a podcast at gmail.com. 
Uh, and you can also tweet at us at Zetai Unme Pod and interact with us there. And then Autumn and I both have our own social media and Twitch accounts. Um, I'm at CarCutie. And I'm at Life in Neon. And again, I am going to be posting that picture. (laughs) (laughs) I'll retweet it on the official uh, Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So keep a lookout for that because I'll probably make it my profile picture too. (laughs) (laughs) I just tweeted out Toga's uh, can you hear it moment from the show. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Just teasing our entry into this arc. (laughs) 